Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Um, this is a pot, and I was on the BBC website this week, and I saw an article all about uh, this, this bowl that someone had found. In, uh, they, they were clearing out their elderly parents' house who had passed on, and they had to do that job of going through all the stuff, figuring out what to do with it. And they, they discovered this bowl, and they thought, you know what, there might be some, some value in this. Let's kind of have it valued, let's take it for, for auction, and see if we can get a bit of money selling it. So they went to the, the Stamford auction house in Lincolnshire. It was like a, a, a local auction house. And uh, the dealers there said, uh, yeah, there's probably a bit of value in this. It's probably worth £500 you could expect to get for it. Maybe as high as £800 for this result. Let's, let's auction the thing off. Let's get a bit of cash for it. Now, it turns out that the person who'd valued it was majorly wrong. Okay, this is a 900-year-old uh, bowl from the Chinese Song Dynasty. There are only a very small number of these owned by members of the public, not in museums or anything like that. And there was somebody in that auction room who knew actually what it was, who knew that this kind of £500 valuation was ridiculous. So they turned up thinking, I'm going to get a bargain. I'm just going to bid what it takes to get this because it's worth a lot more than what they're saying. Now, the problem for the person who did that is they weren't the only person who'd had the same idea. Uh, And there was a couple of people who knew what it was worth. And so they were bidding against each other and bidding against each other. And this this bowl with a £500 valuation ended up selling for £320,000. And uh, the people selling it were absolutely blown away. The auctioneers were absolutely blown away because something they thought had a little bit of value, it turned out had way more value than they ever thought. And when you understand what something actually is and where it came from and what it's about, how it was made, when it was made, by whom it was made, you can start to get a sense of the real value of that thing, can't you? And it makes a difference to how you treat it. Now, at £500, they're not going to be throwing it around and uh, being kind of careless with it, but they're probably not going to hire security guards to guard the room either. Whereas when you know what it's truly worth, maybe you'd respond to it in a very different way. Here's the thing, though, right? In that auction room, would it surprise you if I told you that that bowl wasn't even the thing in the room that was most valuable? That there were quite a few other things there with a higher value even than a £320,000 bowl. And actually, it wasn't even close. It wasn't like a tightly run thing. Because that auction room was filled with men and women, maybe some children were there as well, who were precious in God's sight, who were eternal in nature, and who, just like this pot, often people will look at them and think, yeah, they're all right, maybe they, they have a little bit of value, but didn't get quite how staggeringly high 
the value that each person in the room had on the basis of who made them, how they were made, what they actually are. We don't often quite grasp just how important and how valuable people are. Here's the big point today. People matter. If you're going to remember one thing, remember that. And remember that every person you will ever meet has more value than you can comprehend. I was out in Manchester yesterday. I was just looking at the streets and seeing all these people walk by and just the, the variety of different people, people uh, different ages, people uh, who've come from different parts of the city or different places into the city, people who are uh, spending their time doing different things, had a different purpose, had a different cultural background, had different opinions, had different views, had different priorities, had different uh, things that they were into, things that they were questioning, things that they were struggling with, this whole range of people. And it just blew my mind that every single one of them is of incredible value, is incredibly precious. It just struck me anew. C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Now, the series that we're doing this term, uh, really where it came from is as church leaders, quite often people will want to talk about different aspects of life, different things that are going on, things like work, things like marriage and relationships, things like temptation, whatever it may be. And they'll want to start conversations about these things. And quite often those conversations end up being like, should we go back to the start of the Bible? Should we see how things were as God made the world? And then we can kind of follow the thread, see what's happened since, when people turned from God, when Christ came. How does it work out for our lives? But it so often starts at the beginning. So over this term, we're looking at the first few chapters of Genesis and picking up different things going on in there uh, and learning uh, from these threads about different things that matter. Now, Andy kicked us off last week and he talked about a bunch of stuff that God had made. And God had made all sorts of stuff. He'd made the light and the darkness. He'd separated the waters above and the waters below. Separated the land from the sea, made plants, made birds, made fish, made the sun, the moon and the stars. And that was kind of a whole bunch of stuff that God made that was good, but was like the undercard that was like the warm-up act because he was building up to the pinnacle of his creation. And that's what I get to talk about today. You know, I think it's fascinating when you think, what's the very, very best thing? What's the high point? What's the number one draw in all God's creation? Some people would say, I think it's space. I think it's the stars. When you see the statistics on how many stars there are in our galaxy, how many galaxies there are in the universe, and just the sheer scale and beauty of it, maybe you feel like, wow, that's the best thing that God's made. And yet as the story is told, verse 14 of Genesis 1, all we get about the stars is, yeah, he also made the stars. It's a little bit of an afterthought, isn't it? It's a little bit like, yeah, he did that. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that because it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is in verses 26 and 27. Everything else, God in his self-evaluation said it is good. This time he's upping it a level and said it is very good. And that's people. What is man 
that you are mindful of him. So, if you've got your Bible with you, please do turn. Genesis 1. And I'm only going to look at two verses today. Verses 26 and 27. And this is what they say. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to start by just asking three questions about it, and then we'll draw out a huge implication of what we've learned. And we'll probably spend most of our time on the implication. But three quick questions. What do these verses say about humans in relation to God? What do they say about humans in relation to each other? And what do they say about humans in relation to the rest of creation? Let's start. What, what does it say about humanity in relation to God? Well, the most obvious thing that it says is humanity, people, you, me, everyone we meet, was created by God. So we are not ultimate. We're not the most ultimate thing. God is. And we get our meaning. We get our life. We get everything we are from him. It's a gift given to us by him. But what that means is that we're not flailing around aimlessly trying to figure out what life's about. If we've got questions, what is the meaning of life? When we know, well, God made us, we know who to ask. We know where to look. If you're thinking, nobody really gets me. No one understands quite how I work. I, it seems like whatever I say, whatever I do, it just doesn't connect with people. Will anyone ever get me? Well, the one who made you, the one who formed you, the one who created you as you are, understands you, gets you. You can connect with God and he truly understands you as you are. And it says that God not just created humans in the same way that he created everything else that we had listed last week, but that he created humans in his own image. So each one of you and each person you meet is made in the image of God. Just let that sink in for a second. Just think about the people that you meet on a regular basis. Made in the image of God. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You know, I've heard talks about it. I've read books about it. I've had conversations about it. There's a whole load of different ideas. People will guess, they'll speculate, they'll put forward their suggestions. Here are some of the, the ones that I've heard. I've heard uh, people say, being in the image of God is primarily that we're able to think, we're able to reason in a way that animals can't, in a way that fish can't. Or we, we've got kind of a higher thinking capacity, and so we're in God's image on the basis of that. Or others will say, no, 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 it's, it's not that. Being in God's image is about the role that we've been given. We've been given a special privilege to steward creation on his behalf. We're like his representatives over the rest of creation. That's what it means to be in God's image. Or some would say, it's more about a moral thing, that we know right from wrong, that we can make choices between good and evil. Do I follow God's way or do I go my own way? That's what the image of God is. Or some have said... 
It's more that we're created so that we can be in relationship with God. That's what it means to be in God's image. Or, or, or sometimes it's not just about being in relationship with God. The fact we're relational beings at all. The fact we can have community, know other people, get to know and share our lives with others. And I was wondering, well, all right, that's a lot of different ideas. Which, which of them is it? Which is the right answer to that question of what God's image means? And what really helped me with that was when I just flicked a few pages forward in my Bible to chapter 5. Often uh, when you get questions about what something means, looking at where the same words come up, particularly if it's nearby in kind of similar passages, it helps you. And in Genesis 5 verse 3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. And named him Seth. And I thought, man, it, it would be absolutely ludicrous, wouldn't it? To say, okay, okay, but in what way is Seth in Adam's image? Is it that he, he had the same ears? Is that what it is? Or is it that he had the same mannerisms when he talked? You don't do that. When, uh, when people tell me that uh, m- my son resembles me in uh, a lot of ways, they're not saying there's one thing that you've got in common. They're saying in a whole host of ways, there's a family likeness there. And I think when we see humanity in God's image in chapter one, we, we're meant to think of it in a similar way. All of those things on the list, I think there are aspects of it. I think there are ways in which humans do resemble God to greater or lesser extents. And there's probably more we could add as well. But I think the idea of what's going on is, is that when God wanted to pick out something in his creation, that he says, this is most like me. This resembles me. If you want to see what I'm like, this is where you should look. He chose humanity. Actually, the idea of image of God, it's kind of like temple language. In the ancient cultures, they'd have like a a temple and the God would put his image in there. It might be like a bull or an eagle or something that was meant to represent him. And here in the Bible, it's like God isn't going to have an image or an idol or an icon in a temple. Actually, God's image, a thing that represents God in the world, is the people that he made. So if humans are the thing in God's image, if humans are the crowning point of God's creation, shouldn't that radically change the way we relate to and treat every single person that we meet? A second question then, humanity in relation to each other. We're going to actually dig into this a lot more a few weeks from now. So I'm just going to make one observation today and then pass by. But Intrinsic to what bearing God's image is, is that it's both male and female. I wonder if you noticed that in the verses. Verse 27, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. I wonder when you mentally picture person in God's image, what comes to your mind? Do you default to a picture of a man? Do you default to a picture of a woman? If you always default to one or to the other, then that's incomplete. There's something of both maleness and femaleness representing God's image. Nathan Campbell said, it's significant too that the image of God in Genesis is not just something that men do or that women do, but that male and female are created together in the image of God. 
And you can think of that in the sense that uh, God is uh, plurality and diversity. I don't know if you even noticed the language, let us make man in our image. The fact that uh, diversity of persons in relationship is something of who God is. There's something of that in how humans image him. And then finally, what about humanity in relation to the rest of creation? Because verse 26 spells it out. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's basically saying, okay, humans, I'm putting you in charge and I'm putting you in charge of this world. It's a delegated authority. Now you might think, great, I'm in charge. I can do what I want. I'm going to go and beat up a pigeon later. I'm going to go and (laughs) exert my authority. I think you've got it slightly wrong if, if that's the application for you. I think of it more like this, right? Imagine when you were a teenager and your parents were going away on a little trip. They were going out. And the moment comes that finally they trust you and say, look, while I'm away, you're in charge. Take care of the house. Look after it. I'm putting you in charge of the house. They're giving a responsibility, not a blank check. It's not do what you want while we're gone. It's look after this, run this house in the way we'd run the house. We're we're trusting you to do it right. Humans have a distinct role and it's a stewardship role to take care of this planet. So people are made in the image of God. Now I said I was going to spend most of my time spelling out an implication of this. And the implication, nice and simple, human people are important. People have dignity. People have worth. Every single human, because they're made in God's image, is immensely valuable and we need to treat them as such. Now, I think the idea of people having value and worth is one that is not really disputed in culture, in society. I think a lot of people would nod along and would agree with that, whatever their beliefs, whatever their um, kind of faith is. In fact, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, I think that was uh, from the late 40s, says all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And I'd just look at that and I'd say, amen, I absolutely agree, I concur. And then I'd ask the follow-up question, okay, why? Where, where'd you get that from? On what basis do you say people are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And if you can't answer it, then isn't there a danger that someone in the future might unpick it and challenge it? Well, if we just go back in time a a couple of hundred years to when the United States Constitution was written, they said something similar, but they spelled out the logic a little bit more. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The reason people have dignity and rights is because we're created by God and we're made in his image. Justin Toe, uh, who's the senior fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity in Australia, explains it this way. She says, the claim that all human beings have rights, regardless of birth, status or creed, didn't pop out of nowhere during the 18th century enlightenment. 
its roots are biblical. It was Christian thinkers from Basel onwards that shaped the Western concept of human rights. Basically, what she's saying is, for centuries and centuries and centuries, people had been reading their Bible, seeing that people were made in God's image, and so advocating that we treat people with dignity to such an extent that it caught on and it formed the viewpoint of the culture that we live in. I think that's a glorious thing. I think it's easy to say something like, treat people with dignity. And we might look around at a lot of the people in this room and the people we encounter day by day and think, okay, I can do that. I can treat people with dignity. I kind of do it already. That's, that's not a challenging thing, is it? Maybe there are days that I'm a bit snappy with people, but I do get that people are made in God's image. I'll tell you where it's hardest. I'll tell you where it's most important that we really truly reflect on this truth. And that's wherever we encounter people whose human dignity is being downplayed, where it's being challenged, where the consensus opinion is that, nah, we, we don't need to treat them properly as humans. We can kind of just shove them to one side. We can just dishonour them. We can treat them with a little bit less dignity rather than more. And I want to just apply this into a few different issues. Now, the first one uh, is going to be a little bit looking at in the past how Christians applied this. And then the, the final three that I go into will be a lot more in the present. I want to just start by looking at the whole issue of slavery and how Christians spoke about that based on what they saw in the Bible about the image of God. Now, I think we need to say as we go into this at the start that it's true that there were Christians and non-Christians alike who had slaves, who held up the slave trade. That is a shameful thing for anyone, whatever their faith, who was involved with it. If you look on the other side of the argument, if you look, who was it that was fighting against slavery? What kind of arguments were they making? I'll tell you this, you won't find any economic arguments against it. You won't find sociological arguments against it. The only people that I can find who were arguing against slavery when it was a, a pervasive thing were people making theological arguments, were people who'd read Genesis 1, who'd come to understand that humanity in God's image was a precious thing, and we're trying to apply that into that issue of their day. Let me start with Gregory of Nyssa. Now, Gregory of Nyssa was one of the church fathers writing in the fourth century. So this is like, what, nearly a millennium and a half before uh, the whole kind of transatlantic slave trade debate kind of het up. But he saw it really clearly. And this was in a day when slavery was just commonplace. Nobody really challenged it. Gregory did. And this is what he said. How many obols, they were a kind of coin in his day. How many obols did you reckon the equivalent of the likeness of God? How many staters, they're the more expensive, bigger coins, did you get for selling the being shaped by God? God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. Whenever a human being is for sale, therefore, nothing less than the owner of the earth is led into the sale room. But has the scrap of paper and the written contract and the counting out of obols deceived you into thinking yourself the master of the image of God? What folly. Do you see what he's doing there? He's read his Bible. He's read Genesis 1. He's like, wow, people are made in the image of God. And so he articulates it 
that people have the image of God, so should not be sold as slaves. Let's fast forward in time to the 19th century. One of the great abolitionists was Frederick Douglass. He was a man who himself was born into slavery. He escaped from slavery and then he spent his life fighting causes like anti-slavery, also uh, causes like women's rights in the United States in the 19th century. And he makes a similar argument to, to Gregory. He says this, the slave is a man, the image of God but a little lower than the angels, possessing a soul eternal and indestructible, capable of endless happiness or immeasurable woe, a creature of hopes and fears, of affections and passions, of joys and sorrows. The first work of slavery is to mar and deface those characteristics of its victims which distinguish men from things and persons from property. It reduces man to a mere machine. It cuts him off from his maker. Do you see the logic? Do you see what Gregory's doing? Do you see what Frederick is doing? They're reflecting on God's image in people and they're letting it radically transform the way they see people and want people to be treated in their society. Let's apply this into today's conversation about race. It's been talked about a lot recently and racial injustice is a thing and People will ask the question, okay, but why should we fight against racism? Why is racism bad? The very best answer you can give to that question is because people of all races were made in the image of God. Because people of all races have dignity and worth. And so when you abuse or despise or discriminate against or passively allow discrimination to happen against somebody on basis of their race... What you're doing is abusing or despising or discriminating against or allowing discrimination against the very image of God. Awais Mughal is a Pakistani Christian and she explains it this way. She says, many of us still encounter people who are still using the excuses of their ancestors and still misusing quotes from the Bible. Within our arsenal to fight and counter this racism, we need to keep the following verse in mind. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Together, we can honour God's image by respecting cultural and racial differences and avoiding racial comments and the use of humour, words or jokes to intimidate or harass others. We can also use our influence to develop and support strategies that ban racist expressions and organisations. Part of the problem is that international law has not fully been decolonised. We need to work collectively to restore the dignity of those individuals who've been suffering from racism, fight for justice and seek guidance from Paul's message from 1 Corinthians 12. That's the passage about the church being a body with many parts and we all need each other. But do you notice what her argument is? And do you notice how similar it is to how Gregory of Nyssa and Frederick Douglass were speaking? Christians who believe humans are made in God's image, we should be at the front of the fight against any form of injustice and inequality. We should. And that's you and me. We need to step into these things on the belief that people are in God's image. We need to actively fight for the dignity that comes with it, wherever we see that challenged. 
Let's apply it into uh, the context of people with disabilities. Here's one reason why we need to be really, really careful when we articulate what we mean by the image of God. Because if we go down the lines of saying, oh yeah, the image of God, that's all about intellectual capacity. It's okay, but what about somebody who doesn't have that intellectual capacity? Are they no longer in the image of God? Is that what you're saying? Or if we define it in a physical way, or if we define it about being able to relate to others in a particular way, what about people who struggle with that? William Dernis makes an important point. People with disabilities have an image-based dignity that doesn't waver regardless of their ability or potential ability. All humanity shares in such woundedness and vulnerability in a variety of forms, physical, mental, moral, and spiritual, without losing the dignity of being created in the image of God. Let's just be honest for a second, both within the church and within society at large, often the needs of people with disabilities can be overlooked. Having an understanding of the truth of God's image should give us pause for thought. How are we honouring that image in people with disabilities? Maybe it's as simple as adapting the space that we use, adapting the expectations that we carry of people, making things fit in a way that works for people. But also moving beyond simply making inclusion work to belonging. Belonging is way more than inclusion. I think in the Old Testament, David, uh, he invited this guy called Mephibosheth to his table. And Mephibosheth was a disabled guy, a a descendant of Jonathan, who'd been one of David's friends. And uh, the expectation would be that David killed him because he's doing away with a rival kind of kingly line. But David said, no, I want you to come into my household. I want you to eat at my table every day. My home will be your home. You belong here. He created a place of belonging. As Christians who understand that each person is made in God's image, let's work hard that people belong, whatever their ability or disability may be. Finally, let's just for a moment apply this to the unborn. Because the Bible's really clear here. Psalm 139, verse 13, is one of many passages that speak on this. Where, this is where uh, David in the psalm says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Now, as I say, there are lots of other Bible passages, but the Bible is really clear that babies in the womb are human people, unborn people, but people, and so people made in God's image. Now, I know when it comes to uh, culture, there's a lot of, um, kind of, this cuts against a lot of what people would say, and I'm aware that people often bring up complicated cases, like, what about if this happens? What about if this happens? I'd say, shall we start with the premise that that unborn baby is a person in God's image. And I'm aware that a lot of what Gregory of Nyssa and Frederick Douglass said cut across the culture of their day, but from the viewpoint of history, we can see them fighting for the rights of those in God's image. We're absolutely right to do so. John Piper says, why did the early church and all succeeding generations of Christians come to this conclusion that it is forbidden to take the life of the unborn? 
we've already seen the root of this conviction. When a human life comes into existence, something magnificent has happened, created in the image of God to live forever. That makes such a difference. Yeah, I shudder when I hear people use the term like, it's just a clump of cells. Describing, no, it's not. It's a person who's made in God's image. It makes a difference, doesn't it, when you see humanity as valuable. When you don't look at people with a kind of, yeah, there's some value, maybe 500, 800 pounds. When you see the true worth, when you know how we were made, who we were made by, where we came from. Humanity in God's image changes everything. Just let's look at that pot again, if we can, that, that we started with. Because all of us made in God's image, just think about this and let's compare it to that. And you see, running right through it, there there are cracks, aren't there? It's not like it was when it was originally made. There are all these lines, there are all these cracks on it. And I would say, each of us, if we are honest, if we look at ourselves, if we say, do I perfectly resemble God's image? The answer is, well, no. We each carry the dignity of being an image bearer, and yet in various ways we've all fallen short of God's image. We've all done things that don't quite reflect God as we should. Maybe some of the stuff we've talked about today brings up different pain or shame around how we've acted as image bearers of God. But you know, despite it all, despite all the cracks and lines, someone looked at this and said, that is of immense value to me. So much so, I'm going to go into that auction room and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to keep bidding. I'm going to keep bidding and I'm going to keep bidding until I have that pot. Jesus told a story a bit similar to that. He told a story of a man who's walking along and he sees a treasure buried in a field. And he says, you know what, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I want that, so I'll give whatever it takes to have that. It's so easy when we hear a parable like that instantly to think, it's about me, I must be uh, the man and I must give up everything. Let me just suggest, maybe listening to it a different way, I think that that man might be Jesus, who's walking along and sees buried in a field a treasure of immense value. People made in God's image, people like you, people like me, people like everyone we ever come across. And what did he say? He says, I want that. I want that. I value that. And I'm going to give up whatever it takes. I'm going to give up everything to get that treasure. And so he did. He gave up everything. He took the form of a servant and then he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, to get this treasure of value. This person made in his image, you and me. In Christ, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation with God. Everything is made right. And then there's a restoration process going on. Romans 8 verse 29 says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, Jesus perfectly shows us the image of God. He perfectly demonstrates what it looks like. And now in him, we're being conformed to his image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Oh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The life of the Christian is looking on God and increasingly 
shining out that image, increasingly wearing it in our lives. Someone saw how much the pot was worth and he gave everything for it. And God gave everything for people. Many of whom are in here who've responded, who've accepted his grace. And many of whom haven't. And yet he still loves them. His heart is still for them and he still wants to draw them in. Humanity made in God's image is of immense value and worth. No wonder at the end of that sixth day, God looked on what he created and said, it is very good. Hey, I'm going to pray and then let's respond with some singing. Lord, we are blown away. We're absolutely blown away that you value humans in such a way. Lord, you treat us differently to how you treat the animals and even the angels. You value us so much you sent your son to become one of us, to live a human life, to fulfill on our behalf every purpose you had for humanity, to restore us, to redeem us. Thank you that where there have been situations for each of us where others have dehumanized us, have treated us without worth, that you speak a different word. And Lord, I pray as your people, you give us that same courage that Frederick Douglass had, that Gregory of Nyssa and that many others through the centuries have had to, to stand up, to say people matter. People have value and worth. Let your church be, be bold in doing this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.